What do you believe about God in the afterlife? How certain are you that your beliefs are true? Can we have certainty about our deepest convictions? These are just some of the questions we'll be addressing on this edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Rosenthal, and on this program, we'll be discussing the relationship between faith and certainty. Over the past few episodes, I've aired a number of man-on-the-street interviews that I recorded at a variety of Christian events. And if you've heard some of those interviews, you know that most of the people I talked with ended up describing faith as a kind of blind leap, which by definition would make it a less-than-certain type of thing. When I chose to probe further by asking why a particular individual chose to take a leap of faith toward the God of the Bible, rather than to all the other faith options that are out there, I was frequently told that it was just something that the person knew deep down inside. It wasn't cognitive, but something intuitive. Now, it turns out that these kinds of ideas have actually been with us for some time. In fact, when I recorded similar interviews at a Christian event in downtown St. Louis some 15 years ago, I got nearly identical answers. Listen to some of these responses. Uh, what, in your understanding, is faith? Faith, uh, believing the unseen. It's almost like a sixth sense, if you could say that, because we touch, feel, taste, and, and faith is a nonsense, which means it's not a normal sense that we see. Just because we're not aware of that sense doesn't mean that sense doesn't exist. Faith is living beyond what you can see and feel, because you know in your heart When God is inside of you, you know in your heart that God is there. Faith is faith. Faith is um, putting your trust in something that you can't see with your eyes, but you know in your spirit is true. Faith is believing in something you don't see, but it's a reality. It is a blind leap. Faith is something that you are longing for, 
that you don't know where it's coming from, but you're believing for it to happen. Faith is mysterious on one hand, and on the other hand, completely practical. Faith is taking a step even in the midst of uncertainty. Faith is believing in something in your heart and carrying on even if it's not seen present. Faith is just having confidence in something you cannot see because it's inside you and you know it. When one accepts Christ on faith, that person knows. So is it something you feel? You do feel it. Well, actually, you do feel it. So it's no longer a head knowledge, but it becomes a heart thing because you know now that you know that you know that you know he's real. As one of the respondents said, faith is taking a step in the midst of uncertainty. But if the Christian faith is so uncertain, how did it ever get started in the first place? What was it that convinced people to stop worshiping pagan gods like Zeus and Apollo and to begin worshiping Jesus? More importantly, how can we be sure that the things we believe about Jesus or the Bible are in fact true? Well, as you heard in those clips, the great majority of the Christians I've talked with typically focus their attention inward. To them, faith isn't something you can prove, but it is something you can know within the recesses of your heart or spirit. It's a feeling inside, something you just know that you know that you know. But the question I'd like to ask for this episode is whether we actually find this kind of language anywhere in the New Testament. For example, did Peter or the other apostles ever make these sorts of claims in the sermons we find throughout the book of Acts? Those sermons were, more often than not, delivered in hostile environments. So how did the earliest Christian believers attempt to convince people around the world to put their faith in Jesus? Well, in order to answer these questions, I decided to talk with my former seminary professor, Dr. Dennis Johnson, who has written numerous helpful books, including a couple of commentaries on the book of Acts. To get the conversation started, I first played a number of clips from my recent interviews and asked Dr. Johnson whether he knew of any passage in the book of Acts in which one of the apostles ever said something to the effect that since faith is a blind leap and not something that can be proven, you just need to trust what your gut or intuition is telling you about Jesus. I actually don't remember their saying that at at any point. Um, Many of the sermons in Acts are to people who are familiar with with the scriptures, with the Old Testament scriptures, Jewish context right. or Jews and Gentile God-fearers. And the apostles typically make their case for Jesus to trust him on the basis of the fact that he has fulfilled Old Testament scripture. Obviously, they focus on the resurrection because that's the, uh, the pivot point. All agreed that he died, although the apostles also emphasize that Christ's death fulfilled Old Testament scripture, his betrayal by Judas, his suffering on the tree, which is a reference to Deuteronomy 21, the form of his death, his fulfillment of the Isaiah servant songs, Isaiah 53. Uh, He's fulfilled these things. So they're pointing to those scriptures fulfilled objectively, not to someone's gut or feeling. And even when they're talking to pagans, like the pagans in Lystra and in Athens, Again, they're pointing to evidence that they would acknowledge and had acknowledged outside of themselves. So again, they're giving reasons to believe. Yes, there are things about the Christian faith that we can't see and measure, 
But there's a basis for our trusting in Christ and trusting in the reality that he has come in the midst of history, fulfilled specific words that God had given centuries before. And it's on that basis that they call people to repentance and faith. So we may respond to the gospel and have experiences in light of the truth, but the very fact that they called the earliest Christian proclamation a gospel, good news, means, doesn't it, that it's something outside of us. It's news. It's a report of something that's happened. Definitely. Definitely. Right. Uh, You think of Peter on the day of Pentecost. He gets into the sermon because the Holy Spirit has done something extraordinary And people are speaking the mighty deeds of God. I think Peter's sermon really tells us what that means. It's about Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit. But he goes very quickly from the experiences of those believers, which had gathered a huge crowd, including many doubters, and goes immediately to the public events of Jesus' life and how those things fulfill the ancient word of God. Yeah, whatever your view of Acts 2, the ultimate point is it culminated in a long sermon about Jesus. (laughs) About Jesus, grounded in Joel, grounded in Psalm 16, climaxing in Psalm 110, that he is Lord and Christ in fulfillment of that psalm. Yeah. Do you ever recall a time in which one of the apostles said something like, uh, none of us can see Jesus any longer, but we can feel his presence And that's how you know Christianity is true. Again, I can't think of of their making that kind of an argument on the basis of subjective feeling of the presence of God. Obviously, the Apostle Paul teaches that the Holy Spirit indwells believers. But our faith doesn't rest in feelings, which are extremely volatile. Yeah, Uh, C.S. Lewis said, sometimes they come, sometimes they go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you recall any time in which Peter or Paul said that um, faith really isn't a cognitive thing that can be explained, but rather is something you just know deep down in your heart? Definitely not. Definitely not. When you think about, you know, Paul talking about what he delivered to the Corinthians. Now we're moving outside of Acts, but, uh, you know, it's a crucial passage in 1 Corinthians 15. These are the things I wanted to tell you of first importance, the most important things. Mm -hmm. Of first importance, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared in his resurrection body. Again, that's external to the 11. It's external to the group of 500. It's external to Paul. Uh, It's revelation coming from outside them to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection. That is what Paul says, there's the foundation of your faith. It's what God has done outside you objectively and has revealed in such pointed ways through the scriptures, then fulfilled in Christ and demonstrated to us through the witness of the eyewitnesses, including, as Paul says himself, as the last of all. And we know that he's not referring to some kind of uh, spiritual resurrection in the hearts of the believers because he and he says Christ died and was buried and then yes. is seen alive. Right. So there's an objective empty historical tomb there. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Do you subscribe to the view that what Paul there passes on, he said he uses that language of passing on tradition, that which I've received, I pass on to you, is uh, basically has the form and structure of an ancient creed? Oh, I would say definitely. 
Yes, definitely so. Because that's something that that I found across the spectrum of New Testament scholars today. It seems like whether or not you're completely atheist, like a Gerd Luneman type, or, or a very liberal John Dominic Crossan, or a popular writer like Reza Aslan, and he's a Muslim, whatever your view, people who, who are studying the New Testament are coming to the conclusion today that this is an early creed, probably in the mid to early 30s. So the earliest Christian community is confessing this. Paul is restating this creed that he's taught, that Jesus died, was buried, uh, didn't stay dead, but was raised again. And he was seen by certain witnesses. He mentions them by name. But then he says he was also seen, he was foreseen by those who wrote the scriptures. And he, he has that refrain, according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, right. And that combination between the eyewitness testimony and what the scripture records, I think, is the unique aspect of the Christian faith that I don't think you find in any other religion. What do you think? I'm not aware of it being in any other religion, you know, and it's because Christianity is so focused on God having worked in real history, uh, in a sense, public history. If though, As Paul says later on in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ was not raised from the dead, we're lying about God, and there's nothing there. So he's pointing to an objective historical event prophesied through the Old Testament scriptures, testified to by multiple witnesses, including himself, who had been before Damascus Road, an unwilling witness. Right. Uh, you know, uh, those events, that reality outside us is uh, make or break for the whole Christian faith. There's no other, I think, religion that would say that. Certainly Judaism would point to reality of the scriptures and the fulfillment of scriptures in the Exodus. But outside of that tradition, which I believe come to fulfillment, really, in the sending of the Son as the promise to Israel, there's no other one that really is based on the reality of those historical events. I recently came across a a line from the Quran in which Muhammad is having this conversation with Allah, and he says, you know, what kind of sign will you give me so that the people will believe me? And Allah says to Muhammad, the signs belong to Allah, so you just tell them, I am but a humble prophet. In other words, you just have to take it or leave it. You believe him that he's a prophet or or you don't. And that religion didn't end up really expanding because of persuasion, but more, I I think you'd probably agree with this, more by the power of the sword. Coercion, yeah, exactly, yeah. And again, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Jesus, a man attested to you by signs and wonders. Yeah, and that word attested is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, if you look at that word in, say, Acts 25, 7, it's translated there in the ESV, proven. So basically, you know, those who say you can't prove faith, I mean, that's precisely what Peter is attempting to do in Acts 2, verse 22. He's saying Jesus was attested, proven, vindicated for you by God with mighty works, as you yourselves know, so he's also appealing to common knowledge, uh, not something private, you know, in the recesses of my individual experience or in my heart. Right, right. And of course, what Peter is doing is simply saying what Jesus himself had said during his earthly ministry, when people were challenging him and saying, you're testifying about yourself. And Jesus would say, well, no, I am, but there are other witnesses. The father is the witness in the works that he's given me to do. Mm. So if you don't believe me, believe the works because they're the father's testimony on my behalf. So again, pointing outside of himself 
And yet, of course, the works are demonstration that he is the eternal son of God and the Messiah sent to redeem his people. So in the uh, as you continue along with Peter's message in Acts 2, he goes on to say that God raised Jesus from the dead as testified in, in advance in the scriptures and as seen by numerous eyewitnesses. He's quoting and interacting with, you know, texts like Psalm 16, Psalm 110, 2 Samuel 7. Yes. But then he says these things that were testified in advance by by the writers of scripture like David were seen today by contemporary witnesses. That's the very same structure you find in that early Christian creed that Paul cites in 1 Corinthians 15, isn't it? Yes, exactly. The ancient witness, centuries before in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures, and now the contemporary witnesses who are affirming that they have seen, and as we know from the Gospels, they've seen Jesus, they've touched the wounds in his hands, they've eaten with him and watched him eat, and so you've got the, the twofold witness of Scripture and the apostolic witnesses together calling people to faith. And if that doesn't cinch it for you, I mean, verse 36 of Acts 2, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has yes. made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Know for certain, that is really different from the sort of uh, subjective leap in the dark. You can't prove faith. I mean, I, I wasn't asking random people on the street. I was at Christian events and asking Christians what they think faith is. Mm. And it seems to me like they've bought into the contemporary misunderstanding of what faith is instead of the biblical view. Peter is saying here that we can know for certain. Yes. And he's doing that. You know, we tend to run over little conjunctions, but they're really important. So in verse 36, he's doing that as the conclusion of his case that he's made. Yeah. Therefore, it's right there in the Greek and in the English, it's faithful too. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain, because of what I've just been reminding you and telling you about. Ancient scriptures, of course, he has just quoted Psalm 110, uh, that Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God. That, as he's explained, again, the phenomena that everybody was watching, seeing that day of the mighty deeds of God being proclaimed among the nations because the Spirit has been poured out by Christ. And he's saying, because these scriptures attest to Christ, to his resurrection, to his ascension, uh, therefore, you can know, not because you've had a particular feeling experience in your heart, but because here's the reality. It stands outside of you and, and calls you to the reality of what God has done in Christ. You know, as close to a century ago now, uh, J. Gresham Machen commented on this section of uh, the book of Acts, and I'd like to get your thoughts about it. Here's what he says. 3,000 were converted on the day of Pentecost, and yet what did Peter's sermon contain? Did it contain merely an account of Peter's own experience of salvation? Not at all. What Peter did on the day of Pentecost was to set forth the facts about Jesus Christ, his life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection— it was on the basis of that setting forth of the facts about Christ that 3,000 believed, confessed their sins, and were saved. So it is in the New Testament from beginning to end. The New Testament gives not one bit of comfort to those who separate faith from knowledge. Let us not deceive ourselves, my friends. Evangelism does not consist merely in the rehearsal of what has happened in the evangelist's own soul. Uh, personal experience, huh? Uh, right. We shall be poor witnesses if we recount only the experiences of our own lives. No, Christian evangelism does not consist in man's going about the world saying, look at me, what wonderful experiences I have, how happy I am, what wonderful virtues I exhibit. 
and you can all be as good and as happy as I am if you will just make a complete surrender of your wills in obedience to what I say. (laughs) That is what many religious workers seem to think that evangelism is. He says, we can preach the gospel, they tell us, by our lives, but we do not need to preach it by our words. They are wrong. Men are not saved by the exhibition of our glorious Christian virtues. They are not saved by the contagion of our experiences. We cannot be the instruments of God in saving them if we preach to them thus only ourselves. Nay, we must preach to them Jesus Christ, for it is only through the gospel which sets him forth that they can be saved. What do you think about Machen's comments? Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. As you were reading it, I was thinking, I I was preaching this past Sunday on 2 Corinthians 4. And in that text, early on, Paul says, it's not ourselves that we preach, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We have a role as servants, but we're not preaching us. We're preaching him. And of course, in the whole context of his writing to the church at Corinth, first and second, he keeps emphasizing, I'm preaching the cross of Christ, which looks weak to some and looks foolish to others, but it's God's wisdom and it's God's power. I'm preaching Christ. I'm calling people to trust in him, not to trust in me, and certainly not to trust in my experience, even though he does say God does make his people new creation in Christ Jesus, and there will be change when faith comes. But the faith is resting in what God has done in Christ. You know, when he, you look at some of the things that he was, Machen was talking about in, in his criticism of what was modernistic Christianity, um, right. liberal forms of Christianity— I mean, the odd thing that I find as I read that is it seems like it was written last Thursday. Right. (laughs) So evangelical Christianity in some ways is redoing the old modernistic liberal theology where faith is separated from knowledge and experiences at the center rather than the objective work of Christ. Yeah, definitely. I agree. You know, when I hear Christians make the claim that you can't prove faith— I start to wonder whether they've really read the New Testament closely. You know, for example, in the opening of his gospel, Luke doesn't say to Theophilus, I'm writing these things to encourage you to make a blind leap into Jesus' arms, (laughs) right? I mean, instead, he he writes to him to say, I'm giving you an orderly account with all the eyewitness material that's been collected so that Theophilus might have certainty. Again, there's that word certainty. Yes, yeah. And it's the noun that's related to the word for certain, in Acts 2 that Peter uses. It's the same. I want you to be assured. And so he does emphasize this is what the eyewitnesses have entrusted to us. And that certainty doesn't come as a result of reflecting on my inner state of affairs. It comes as a result of processing, reading, and reflecting on the evidence that Luke has provided. Right. Exactly. And he does the same thing in the beginning of Acts, doesn't he? He says, in my first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then in verse 3, he goes on to say that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. Right. And in that little sentence, he's really summing up what he had recorded at the end of his gospel, because these are two books that belong together, Mm -hmm. right? And in the end of his gospel, he really belabors the resurrection appearances of Christ, the tangibility he can eat fish. and Yeah, eating fish isn't something that ghosts typically do. <laughs> right, right. And so Jesus, and, and the way Luke emphasizes the doubt and unbelief of the 11, right. in spite of all that Jesus had said, leading up to 
that last week. In spite of how many times he said the scriptures have to be fulfilled in my suffering and being rejected and dying and then being raised from the dead, still, when the women come back to the group and report that they've seen the vision of angels who said that Jesus is alive, they don't believe the women. And then the two on the road to Emmaus, who apparently set out about that time and, and are heading out, and the stranger to them, not to us, because Luke tells us it's Jesus, but the stranger asks them, and, and they talk about our women have this report that they saw angels, but they didn't see him. I mean, they are looking downcast, so they're not believing. And so this stranger takes them to the scriptures, shows them how necessary it is. Moses and the prophets say that it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and so enter into his glory. And as he does that, suddenly they come to see what is clearly there in the Old Testament. By the time they get back to Jerusalem, then he's appeared to Peter and to some others on that first resurrection day. And so you've got the witness of the Old Testament scriptures, now confirmed by the witness of the New Testament apostles, overcoming unbelief, overcoming doubt, because they're confronted with these things outside of themselves that are undeniable. And so they come to faith. It sounds like Peter isn't sort of inventing this apologetic methodology. You know, he is presenting Jesus as fulfilling all of Israel's prophetic promises. But it seems like he's just following the pattern that Jesus himself had done. You know, Jesus is basically doing this with the two men on the road to Emmaus. He's preaching Christ from all the Old Testament. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yes. To relieve their doubts. He had been doing that with his disciples, his apostles in the making, even before his suffering. Luke records, again, from the eyewitnesses, he was telling us this over and over, that Scripture said that he would have to suffer and die, be raised the third day. Uh, We didn't get it at the time. But when he did, and he appeared to us, then suddenly it all came into focus for them. Why do you think that so many Christians today end up saying things like, you can't prove faith? I don't know. I think it has something to do with uh, how much our culture emphasizes our subjectivity. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it probably has to do with the fact that too many Christians today are not really taught deeply about the whole scripture and how the ancient scripture scripture that God gave through Moses and the prophets testified to Christ. Uh, But I think a lot of it just has to do with our being told to focus in on ourselves and how we feel and and our own impressions, rather than looking outside of ourselves for a solid ground for trust. You know, if we go all the way back to the book of Exodus, you know, during the time in which Moses was told to appear before Pharaoh, you know, someone who is obviously going to doubt that Moses is God's messenger— God didn't instruct Moses to tell Pharaoh that faith is a totally private and subjective thing that just can't be proven. He, he said, you know, when he asks you for proof, you, you shall give it to him. <laughs> right, exactly. God gave Moses signs to show Pharaoh that, you know, if Moses had only told the story of the burning bush, Pharaoh would have said, yeah, right, sure. Yeah, that's your experience, Moses. I need external confirmation. Right. And so God gives external confirmation Mm -hmm. 
You also find that in in uh, Isaiah's writings, don't you? I mean, he says in chapter 41, set forth your case, bring yes. forth your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Tell us what is to happen. He's mocking the false gods who are being worshipped in Israel during a period of great unfaithfulness and idolatry. Right. And so he's like, declare the things to come that we may know you are gods. You know, of course, the gods there in Isaiah's day that were made of wood and stone couldn't speak, much less disclose future events before they happen. But that's precisely the kind of proof that Yahweh provides in Isaiah's prophecy, isn't it? Right, right. And so through Isaiah, long before Judah's exile, long before the order from Cyrus, the Persian king, you know, Babylonians or the Chaldeans take Judah into exile. The Persians, Medes and Persians conquer uh, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And long before Cyrus gives the order to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, God calls Cyrus by name through the prophet Isaiah. And even more importantly, he prophesies in Isaiah 53 of this coming messianic king who suffers Yes. And who is ultimately cut off for the sins of his people. And after he is laid in the grave, he sees light and will make his people to be accounted righteous. Right. I mean, basically, he is writing a gospel like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in a single chapter. But it's 700 years before the New Testament gospels are written. I mean, we know that it's that it was written before the time of Christ because we find copies of it in the Dead Sea Scroll edition that we have that was something like 200 years before the time of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, the Dead Sea Scroll writers commented on it. And there are places where they, in reflecting upon it, acknowledge that this is the divine Messiah who will suffer. So all of this shows us that, you know, there are a lot of people who attempt to try to Take Isaiah and they say, you know, because he mentions Cyrus in advance, this must have been written by a different Isaiah. Oh, yes, 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 of course. But you can't do that with regard to any of these messianic promises. And there are, I mean, literally hundreds of them. There will be a light to the Gentiles. His reign will be from sea to sea. The suffering of the Messiah and the atonement for sin. All these things came true in Jesus. And there's just not a way to explain that apart from the fact that this is a divine text. Exactly, exactly. And that and sounds to me again, like proof. <laughs> that sounds, yes, me too. Well, Psalm 16, written by David, right? Peter quotes it on the day of Pentecost. And then Peter says, now, let's be honest here, folks. This is not about David, because it says here, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And as much as we love the great King David, we know we've got his tomb here. So this has to be about some other holy one greater than David, who was not allowed to see corruption when he died. So again, yeah. So this seems to be God's program. You know, if you look again at Isaiah 41, set forth your proofs is what he's sort of calling on the other gods made of wood and stone to do it, mocking them because they're silent. They can't even speak, but he can. He speaks the future before it happens. So that's the way he is essentially proving that he is the real God. He can declare things before they happen. So one of the things that I find is I read contemporary apologetics. They tend to go in more in philosophical directions. And there's often a missing emphasis on this kind of thing where fulfilled prophecy seems to be the approach taken by the God of the Old Testament, <laughs> by Jesus, mm -hmm. by Peter. Do you think there's there's a missing emphasis on this argument for the truthfulness of the Christian faith? 
Well, I think it's prominent in scripture. I'm not reading apologetic works these days as much as you are, but if it's not there, then that's a big gap. Uh, now I can empathize with those who take a philosophical approach because they're probably trying to think uh, a little bit the way the apostles were approaching things yeah. when they were talking to the pagans. And they're thinking, well, these people that I'm trying to persuade may not accept the Old Testament scriptures as the word of God. So I'm going to go to, uh, as the apostles did, to general revelation, uh, the content of their samples, maybe not whole sermons that we have in Acts 14 to the folks at Lystra and Acts 17 uh, to the Athenian philosophers. The content's fully biblical, but they're not quoting scripture and saying this is fulfilled. I understand that it needs to be done as well. I agree. But there's also the case to be made, whatever you think of the authority or not of the Old Testament scriptures, you do have to find some explanation for the fact that these scriptures are fulfilled as the New Testament testifies Mm -hmm. in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, in his death, in his resurrection, these events that are attested by eyewitnesses. If you're going to be honest and say, I want to accept, I want to listen to all the evidence, you need to find a way to figure out how those ancient, ancient prophecies came to fulfillment in Christ as attested by the witnesses who were there. One of the things I love about your work is that you've written such a great deal about the idea that Christ isn't just, you know, here and there in a handful of scattered messianic prophecies, but that he's actually the major subject of Scripture, Old Testament and New. So I'm wondering, do you think if we were to recover that way of reading Scripture— the Christ-centered approach, seeing him as announced, foreshadowed, prophesied everywhere, if that would improve both our theology as well as maybe our apologetic engagements as well? I think it would improve both. Yes, it would help our theology. It would help our evangelism and apologetics. And frankly, I think it would help our reading for ourselves Mm -hmm. of the whole Bible, of the whole scriptures. So it would draw us, it would, we would be reading Old Testament scriptures with the question in mind, how does this text testify and lead me to the person and the work of Christ? How does it diagnose my need? How does it draw me to him as the fulfillment of all that God has promised? Yeah. I was recently um, talking at a, at a church about sections in Genesis where Jacob is sort of doing the scheming and striving and God sort of interrupts his life with uh, a, a different message, a different word. And when you pay attention to those themes, you see that Jacob is not the hero of the story. Oh, my. No. But he's rescued in the midst of his striving and scheming with a gracious message of redemption. You know, he, here he is sleeping, you know, on his way out of the land because his brother's threatening to kill him, Genesis 28. And God appears to him. There in this great stairway with angels ascending and descending. And then later, as you look back at that text, when you're reading the Gospel of John, you say, that's really strange. Jesus is saying, you'll see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's actually claiming to be the Yahweh who spoke to Jacob there in Genesis chapter 28. Yes. And you wouldn't have known it when you're reading Genesis that this particular appearance of God to Jacob was Jesus, but that's really the only conclusion you can come to when you read both Testaments. Exactly. And you take the story a bit further, and Moses is not the hero, 
as it turns out in Exodus after all. Yeah, he wasn't Moses, even allowed into the promised land at the end of the day. Well, that's true. But I'm thinking all the way back at the beginning, at the burning bush, uh, and God appears to him and identifies himself as, I am, I am, and I'm going to send you, and I'm going to give you the signs that we've been talking about. And then we come to the New Testament, and we find Jesus using that very expression about himself. Right. I am, before Abraham was, I am, and people pick up stones to throw at him because they realize what he's claiming. He's claiming to be the Lord, the creator of the universe, the redemptive God of Israel in the flesh. And they think that's blasphemy. But they understand it correctly, what he's claiming. Yeah, because you being a man claim to be God. Exactly. And, and it's pretty clear, too, when you go to the beginning of Exodus 3, it doesn't say that God appeared to Moses. It says the angel of Yahweh, the messenger right. of Yahweh. I, I, I don't know about you, but I've kind of come to see that that word is sometimes translated ambassador. So mm -hmm. it's, we shouldn't think of an actual angel. We should think of it as describing a particular ambassador of Yahweh who then speaks and acts as Yahweh. He's yes. sent by Yahweh, and yet he is Yahweh. Exactly. Which sounds a lot like the beginning of the Gospel of John. So there's a hint there that there's some, some sort of plurality mm -hmm. within the unity, since Yahweh is one. Unquestionably, he's one. Deuteronomy 6, we'll hear that in the Shema. He is one. And yet, the messenger, the ambassador of Yahweh, also speaks and is Yahweh. And, and the narrative moves back and forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a hint there of the Trinity. Yeah, just a very early hints that are consistent with what you find in the New Testament. For example, in John's Gospel, one of the main ways, I mean, this, this idea is repeated some 40 times. Jesus will – the main way he describes his relationship to the Father is, I am the one sent by my Father. Right. I'm sent on a mission is exactly the language you find with this angel of Yahweh who is an ambassador sent on a mission. So that's not something that the New Testament invents. In fact, as you look through Jewish documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, they are looking for this messianic individual who will end up becoming – in some sense, a suffering Messiah, which kind of involves him being in human form, especially if you take like Isaiah 9, 6, uh, for unto us a child is born. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, and, or David's promise in 2 Samuel 7, you want to build me a temple? Well, I'm going to build you a temple. In fact, your son will build a temple. That's interesting. It's going to be God building a temple, but also David's son, both. How can that be? Jesus, the ultimate son of David, who also happens to be God incarnate, is the solution to the riddle. Right, exactly. Or, one more example, we come to Ezekiel, and in Ezekiel, the Lord confronts, Ezekiel 34, confronts the shepherds of Israel who have exploited the sheep and let them wander and not protected them, and the Lord says, you're all going to be fired, <laughs> and I will come to gather my sheep, and I will even discipline the bullies among my flock, but I will protect them, I will regather them, I will bind them up, and my servant David will be their shepherd, and I will be their God. So, Yeah, but David's been Lord dead comes. for a few hundred years when Ezekiel writes that. That's one of the issues there, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so, okay, you say, well, it must be a descendant of David, yeah. who will shepherd, right? Uh, but then in John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Everybody who came before me were thieves and robbers. 
or else they were hired people who didn't protect the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. And by the time in John 10, he actually comes to the point of saying, I and the father are one, which again leads them to be outraged and want to execute him. He's already been using Ezekiel 34 all the way through to say, the Lord will be the shepherd of his people. I am the shepherd of my people. And of course, he is also then the son of David, the promised Messiah. So there's the mystery of the person of Christ. Yeah. So as you become more aware of the language of the Old Testament, you will begin to recognize that basically every time Jesus opens his mouth, he's claiming to be the one who was spoken of in, in the Old Testament. He says, uh, you seek the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but these are the texts that speak of me. You put your hopes in Moses, but Moses wrote of me. <laughs> right. And Moses will accuse you for not listening to his witness about me. Do you think this is part of our problem, that many American Christians sort of have subscribed to the idea that I prayed a prayer, walked the aisle, but they don't really know their Bibles well, particularly the Old Testament. And so if they do read something from Jesus, that it's sort of not really well understood what the significance of that statement is. I'm afraid so. I think you're right that that we're too unaware of the, the rich Old Testament context in which we really be, need to be listening to Jesus' teaching about himself, about the kingdom of God, about the way of redemption with the Messiah coming to suffer for his people. Uh, we just, we don't, we don't know what the New Testament writers and Jesus to his audiences expected them to know. We need to know the Bible better. Yeah, and we need to know the Bible better because this is the revelation that has been proven and vindicated. It is a cognitive thing that we are meant to absorb and read and digest. And Jesus, as you say, is one of the crucial sort of interpretive keys for us because as you listen to him on the road to Emmaus, he opens the scriptures, focusing us on his centrality there as the one who was to suffer, die, as, as was revealed in Moses in the Psalms and the prophets. Once we understand that's the central message of scripture, that's the key that unlocks the book. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was summarizing your work. Of course you would agree. I, I was going to say I couldn't say it so well, but I, maybe I, I have think you said did. It kind of okay. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely true. Well, my guest for this program has been Dr. Dennis Johnson, who is Professor Emeritus of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California, and the author of a ton of helpful books, including Journeys with Jesus and Let's Study Acts. Dr. Johnson, thanks so much for being my guest today on The Humble Skeptic. Well, thank you, Shane. I've enjoyed our conversation. Well, folks, for more information about this program, simply head to HumbleSkeptic.com, where you can check out other episodes and read articles on a variety of different topics. That's HumbleSkeptic.com, and I look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives.